Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch, the editor here at the LPI. How are you? I hope you're well. Today I bring you my conversation with Simon Wheatley, who is the Resource Development Manager and National Performance Coach Development Lead at the Lawn Tennis Association. Simon recently co-wrote a book with a chap called Keith Humphrey that should be right up your street. It's called The Sweet Spot, Unleashing Potential in Tennis Coaches, Players and Parents. It's already proving to be something of a must-have for the tennis community, but as we delve into questions of learning styles and behaviours around coaching delivery, it's clear that the lessons extend well beyond tennis. So I went along to the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton, in leafy West London, to chat to Simon. I also bumped into him again at our recent Leader Sport Performance Summit at Twickenham. Did you attend? If not, why not? It's widely being held up as our best summit yet, but if you did dodge it and you're a Leaders Performance Institute member, then the session footage from Twickenham is now available on our Sports Performance Hub at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. There you'll find the likes of Red Bull's Ralph Ranick discussing the development of a footballing culture at Red Bull's Global Stable of Clubs, as well as author Matthew Sayer digging into cognitive diversity, and renowned international storyteller Claire Murin Murphy explaining in extremely entertaining fashion why storytelling is important for winning teams. Claire also spoke on the last edition of The Pod, alongside Google, Chelsea FC and many others besides, as my colleague James went behind the scenes at the summit. Do check that out too once you've wrapped your ears around this. Okay, now back to Simon Wheatley and the sweet spot. I finally got him in an office at the LTA, but only after we'd ejected a certain Sir Andy Murray from the room. Simon Wheatley, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you, good to be here. Simon, tell me a little bit about where we are. We're obviously at the LTA and... Five minutes ago, I saw Andy Murray in the corridor. That's right. So a slight delay to our uh, interview because, um, yeah, we're here in London at the National Tennis Centre, uh, the home of our headquarters, our federation and national training centre. And you're right, Andy Murray was in this very room just five minutes ago, which is hence why we're slightly delayed. So apologies for that. No worries at all. You think he <laughs> sat in this chair? He sat right in that chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, as much as I'd love to talk about Andy Murray and his achievements, we're actually here to talk about your book, Simon, The Sweet Spot. Unleashing Potential in Tennis Coaches, Players and Parents. I'd like to start just for the benefit of our listeners to ask you for an overview. You can tell me a little bit about the book. You talk about the magic of three, which is the dynamic between the player, the coach and the parents in tennis and why this works or doesn't perhaps work as a development trio. And you also talk about ensuring players are in their learning zone. Yeah, so I'd hand it over to you and you can... Yeah, absolutely. So um, me and my co-author, Keith Humphrey, have written this brand new book um, and we've used tennis as the platform to share our examples but really the book is for sports parents, it's for sports coaches, it's for um, athletes who really want to understand how they can create um, a much more successful life as well as to be a successful athlete and that's um, that's a really important kind of message in in our book here is that um, how do you find sweet spots in every day um, in your coaching, uh, being a parent, I mean the player. And the sweet spot, of course, is a metaphor uh, uh, in tennis that when you hit the ball right in the middle of the strings perfectly, you, you find the sweet spot of the racket and ball. And the kinesthetic feeling you get when you actually hit the ball so well and so cleanly, um, it, it makes you feel really, really great about the shot that you've just hit. Now, that's essentially what we want to create in our relationships with all the people that help us to achieve our goals and potential um, in, in both sport and 
in, in life. And that could be academia as a junior or in our careers as athletes uh, or whatever that looks like. So the sweet spot is essentially about the trio working at the best that they can work at um, to actually unleash potential in themselves, to regenerate and keep developing, to forge new versions of themselves in order to really help um, develop their, their potential. Simon, of course, it's all very interesting and you've received a lot of positive feedback thus far. Uh, perhaps you could give me a flavour of the seven chapters in The Sweet Spot and what each entails. Sure. So um, the book, I think, is a really, first of all, visual book to read. We wanted to make it um, full of lots of practical tools, um, diagrams, tables, graphs, to make it a great read um, for both parents, players and coaches, um, and also sporting organisations that really want to understand on what coaching, what the difference that coaching does uh, in our sports. So we wrote seven chapters that are all progressively linked with each other. And the first chapter is, is centred around the coaching culture, context. So we really look at the political, social, logical, the economical um, landscape of how sport is moved from and where it's moving to. Uh, and what we talk about is, you know, the, the purpose of the coach, player and parent is, you know, essentially to maximise the talent of the player. So they're not just successful, as we said, in sport, but they're successful in their life and their career. Um, that they have a successful life outside of tennis. Um, but we do believe that the coach can often be the primary catalyst um, of, of real success there, that they have a real opportunity to leave tangible differences. Um, but all are responsible for co-creating this sweet spot and fulfill their purpose. So the first chapter really is an overview chapter around coaching culture, coaching roles, uh, and, and giving a little introduction to the rest of the book. Now chapter two is more around um, how we help create that real alignment and common purpose in the relationship. It's about long-term development. It's about regeneration. So we believe that you'll find a sweet spot if you can build, maintain, and, and you know, and regenerate aligned relationships so that all the you know players and coaches and parents uh, are working towards the same goal, um, towards similar process, and and also towards similar mindsets. And that will lead to a more virtuous cycle, which benefits all stakeholders. Again, the coach is the catalyst of all three. Um, but all three are responsible at regenerating uh, when it's needed. So all three are responsible for successfully managing these transitions that are so important in the development of the athlete. Now, chapter three, we move on to, I guess, helping coaches, parents and players understand their role, or each of their own roles in, in learning. So this is what we talk about in the book, that the role of the modern coach now is not just to develop elite athletes, but it's to develop elite learners. That becoming an elite athlete is a byproduct of becoming an elite learner. You are much more likely to be an elite athlete if you learn well, learn quick, learn thoroughly, and love learning. Um, and we talk a lot about that in the book, about the importance of learning. So we talk on the science, into the science of that. Um, it's in order to maximize you know, the player's potential, the coach, player, and parent really need an in-depth knowledge of learning. It's not just about being smart in the theory, but we have to just practically apply our understanding of how people learn in order to maximize their potential. So I guess, you know, in that chapter, we talk about how learning channels and learning styles and learning mindsets and how we critically analyze and also explore some of the barriers and why people find it more difficult to learn. So I think that's really nice for parents and coaches to resonate with, with their own child. Uh, chapter four explores at a more deeper level, the, the, the role of emotions and resilience. So in order to release real potential, the coach, player and parent need to understand their own and others' emotional processes. So, and we have to understand that our feelings can help or hinder the progress of the athlete. 
So to create sweet spots, we should explore, understand, manage, and learn to transform our emotions over time. And again, the coach is the catalyst for that process. Um, chapter five, we change it up a little bit here, and we talk much more around the importance of different behaviors, that how we need to move inside the room to help our players move outside the room. And that's a really important way of looking at the world. So all learners are different, all parents are different, uh, all coaches are different. And therefore, as players, parents and coaches, we need to have a wide repertoire of interventions to maximize our impact of our coaching conversations. Because everything we do at work, on the court, in our coaching sessions, in staff meetings, is all about having powerful coaching conversations. Everyone's coaching everyone. And it's a nice narrative to have. Sometimes the parent is coaching the athlete. Sometimes the parent is coaching the coach. Sometimes the coach is coaching themselves. So everyone's coaching each other all the time. And if we have that kind of um, more positive outlook on the importance of coaching in sport, then I think everyone will learn from everyone. Um, versus a more traditional way of thinking, which is I'm the coach, I'm the expert, everyone listen to me and I'll progress your talent, which we believe is an outdated way of looking at sport and talent development. Chapter six is more where we talk about transcendence, spirituality, flow, momentum, communi uh, communion. Uh, we believe the sweetest spot of all is when all elements are written, tennis are really in flow, that the TV and the audience and the crowds are enraptured uh, they're playing in the zone, they're playing out of their skins, they're in full communion with the spectators. So that's a really important part of coaching and it's something that's often not taught a lot on the court uh, and we want to change that thinking amongst coaches. And then the last chapter, chapter number seven, is something that we really believe teachers, even teachers in school, um, parents, players, athletes, sporting organisation, performance directors need to really understand how we create a future for ourselves and generations to come. That what we do right now, all of us have a voice at helping change the narrative of our sport for the future. Uh, and this is a chapter on legacy. So, you know, when the trio share a dedication to the future of tennis, as well as their own collective success, um, when they can help create a sweet spot where generations um, yet to come will reap the benefits and I think that's really, really important that, that what the job of the coach is to do is to make the player and person better so they become a better person and player to their parents, to their teachers, to their friends, to their aunties and uncles. So essentially you drop the pebble in the pool and you, you see the ripples go on a long way for a long time. So the role of the coach is such an important one because you don't just change the person in front of you, you change their lives, their peers, and the community that they're living in. Um, and I think that's a really, really important narrative to have as a coach and, and a responsibility as well. So one of the roles of the coach is to improve the tennis experience for our athletes in order to bring about a change in society. It's all very interesting, Simon. And of course, you've covered so many different areas there. There's definitely going to be something for everyone. In this chat today, we're going to talk a bit more about learning and behaving. Chapters three and five, as you were just talking about there, but first, I wanted to take it back a bit to ask why you and Keith wrote the book. What was your motivation and yeah, what sure. led to you picking up a pen? I guess there's a couple of reasons to answer that question. The first reason is that uh, Keith, my co-author, uh, is a hugely um, successful um, 
business consultant and coaching consultant of big corporations around the world, Coca-Cola, the Grosvenor Group, KPMG, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, he's done a huge amount of executive coaching in his career. Uh, and then my background, is, of course, is in performance coach education. So my role here at the LTA is to be the performance education manager responsible for our highest level of performance qualifications uh, throughout British tennis. Um, so we wanted to merge those two worlds um, in order to write some really good material to help move the dial forwards in coaching. And all of us are coaches, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the, second, the second reason, I, I guess, is that we felt there wasn't a book out there like this that would really touch some of the, the choice points for coaches, parents and athletes on some of the real tangible issues they have with development over time in the sport. Um, and, and we've got a lot of feedback from people already that actually it's helped them be better versions of themselves, to actually be more impactful in their daily habits and daily routines. Um, so there was a, there was a, there was those were the two major reasons really that we wanted to merge our skill sets to write something that we both believed would help move the dial forwards in coaching. And secondly, there wasn't really anything out there like this, especially in the world of tennis, which addresses which zooms out from technique and tactics and planning and stats. You know, the whole world has gone so crazy right now on technology through apps. We wanted to just distance ourselves from that a little bit and go, you know what? That's all really important and we know it's a big part of the future of sport. However, still the thing that makes the biggest difference is who we are with the people around us. That's what really moves the dial forwards. That's what really helps improve performance because um, it's all about having powerful coaching conversations. So if we can become more impactful as humans uh, and more skillful in our coaching, or skillful in our parenting, or skillful in learning as a player, then actually we have the opportunity to really um, accelerate our talent. It might be a cliche, but it really is a people business. We're, we're, oh, so we're, and it's not a cliche, it's actually the reality of our sport. And I think we should never forget, in the, in the midst of all the things that are currently thrown at us with planning and apps and data and science, and they're all really important things, and something I'm a big advocate here in our performance education program, we still shouldn't forget the, the power of people in transforming lives. And, and I think that's what our book really addresses. And that's why, okay, it's the sweet spot of tennis, but actually it's not. The book is about regeneration. It's about growth. It's about personal development. It's a self-help book that's not a pop psychology airport shelf book. It's something that we've really spent two and a half years thinking about at a deeper level to help people regenerate and move from a level of their identity, significance, and competence. So my identity is who I am. Right now, my significance is where I want to be in, in the future. And then what competence do I need in order to achieve um, my goals? Uh, and the book really helps, at a practical level, parents, players and coaches move through that cycle of joining, achieving and moving on. We all join uh, relationships, we achieve success and then we move on. And we have to be very good. And in tennis, uh, we know from the research that, uh, that, that players often have nine or ten coaches before they go on to play for their country. So that's nine versions of joining a relationship, achieving some success, and then moving on to the next one. And we have to be really good at all those stages. And in the book, we explore what that really means. Okay, perhaps we can get into the book a little bit more, specifically chapter three, Simon, learning, thought and style flexibility. Of course, in the chapter, you mentioned the learning cycle, and you talk about the four main types of learning style, activists, reflectors, theorists, pragmatists, and the coaching implications for each type of learning. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that and uh, 
perhaps you could give us a flavour and a summary. Absolutely. So I think the first thing to mention is that we're all involved in teaching and learning all the time, and it's this powerful... Um, and it even got me and my co-author into a, a, a healthy debate around, well, should the future of teaching be called coaching? Because we're not just teaching people information and skills. We're actually coaching people in a relationship um, to be better versions of themselves. So that's always an interesting concept to discuss. Um, and learning, it's all about learning. Because our players and our athletes and our parents are on a learning journey with us in, the, in the, whatever period of time that we're contracted to work with those individuals. So we wanted to write um, kind of some overview document on helping the parent, player and coach really understand at a deeper level um, the learning journey and learning cycle of athletes. And, and Cobb did this work you know, some time ago, and I still think it's pretty relative now, that, that when, when people start to learn new skills, they, they are exposed to a concrete experience. So they have something that's tangible. We know that we learn um, best by doing. We know we learn best by experiencing it. We know we learn best um, in all the ways we, we experience the world. So we learn through sight, through feeling, through uh, smelling, through doing, through feedback. We learn in all the ways in which we experience the world. So Cole uh, recognized that we have a concrete experience, then we reflect upon that experience, and then we actually conclude from that experience and through what we call abstract conceptualization, and then we start to experiment once we've had a go at that. So there's a cycle of learning that people are going through all the time. And if you you know, you know learn to tie your own shoelace for the, at a young age, or if you learn to drive a car, that you're always going through this cycle of being exposed to a concrete experience, reflecting uh, on that experience, concluding from it, and then experimenting based on the changes that you want to make from doing it um, the first time. Um, then we talk a lot about um, different, way, different types of learners. We're all different. And even though um, we're more similar than we are different, and the geneticists would talk, tell us that, that, those small differences make a huge impact on how us as coaching as parents should have inter uh, intervene and have powerful conversations with our athletes. So um, Honey and Mumford uh, evolved that learning cycle to, to align a bit more with different types of learners. And he recognised that there was four types of learners, uh, an activist, a reflector, theorist and a pragmatist. So, so just to give you an idea, someone that's an activist, we all know those those people, which are, they want to get on and try a new experience, they'll learn a lot through trial and error, they're creative and they thrive on challenge, um, which is different to someone like who's a more of a reflector, they're more of a thinking learner, they want to take the time to think things through, they like to watch others try things first, um, they often would appear very tolerant and patient, they're reflecting upon the experience. Um, then you have more of a, like a theorist learner. They're more a, 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 often a, a perfectionist. They're more detailed. They're more objective than others. They like to be much more sure of the theory behind something before diving in with two feet. And I'm sure all of us can relate to, um, even when you speak to parents, they often say, Come, I've got two children and they're completely the opposite. Well, why is that? Is it social? Is it genetics? And it doesn't matter. It's not the right question. The right question is, they're different. So what do we need to do differently to match their preferences of learning? And then lastly, the pragmatist um, likes to solve problems. They love a puzzle. They need to know the relevance of what they're doing. They like to try things out. They'll want to have a go at things before they dive in. Um, and therefore, us as coaches need to essentially adapt our uh, environment that we create in order to match the needs of the learning styles of our athletes. And I, and I use athletes as the example, but it's often not just the athletes because these learning styles are also related to the parent themselves. 
So what do you have a parent that's an activist wants to just get out there and make their child play lots of tournaments, or or is the parent more of a reflector and will sit and watch the results of all the other children in the age group come in, and uh, or are they a theorist that wants to know a bit more about the whys and planning and and more structured? And so as coaches, we're having to deal with this dynamic of different types of parents and different types of athletes, and how we have to keep floating freely in and out of our adaptive techniques and skills as a coach in order to really ensure we're aligned with the player and parent. As I was reading chapter three, I noticed you talk a lot about single, double and triple loop learning in coaching and leadership. Now, Simon, I wonder if you could perhaps talk a little bit about that, what each means and perhaps give some practical examples of each. Sure. And I, I think this is one of the most impactful models of the whole book. Because as organized, we're all working in organizations, we're all working in trio relationships, we're all working in stakeholder management. Um, and it's, it's all too easy to just see an error or a problem within the business and think of the easiest solution for that error, the thing that comes to the front of your mind. Um, but in, in our belief, it's actually when you start to ask more fundamental, deeper level, level questions that you start to get the real issue of why those problems are there even there in the first place. So this is essentially what we mean by single, double and triple loop learning. And, and this research was done some time ago um, at Harvard University. Um, I guess single loop learning is what we call following the rules. It's the most common way that we, um, we look to learn knowledge and skills. And, you know, in single loop learning, we help the player to learn basic patterns, to change their action. Uh, behavior to fix mistakes when we see a mistake and what is the thing we need to do to fix mistakes so for example um, uh, a player when they play matches may feel incredibly stressed incredibly overwhelmed by the the, the environment that they're in um, so therefore the coach may choose to just teach that player a routine to help them breathe more effectively and that's what we call single loop learning is that you give them a simple solution to a simple problem. So here is or what may seem a simple problem at surface level is a better way of explaining it. Um, and that helps the player to stay more calm. Now double loop learning is something that's at a deeper level. So double loop learning is about thinking. It's thinking to a, to a, to a more de in more detail to actually help the player bring about change in their behavior. So here we'll learn new ways of thinking that will impact on the behavior, but we'll also find new ways to think and anal analyze the problem um, differently. So the analysis of a problem allows us to select with practical skills what best suits that situation. So let's take the same example. You have a player that feels incredibly stressed in performance. Um, but now we want to know, well, why are they feeling stressed? So we're starting to ask the questions, well, why? Because yes, we could just give them a routine, but that routine may actually mask the, the, the underlying issue or cause of why that stress is there in the first place. Um, you know, so we start to explore, and, and what, we, what we see is that the player has a lack of self-belief. And we know so many athletes can sometimes go to the court and believe that the, whoever the person is in front of them, they're inferior to. And therefore, that they lose their confidence and they start to feel even more stressed. And it's a negative belief cycle that repeats itself until the player um, is not able to perform at their highest level. Um, so that, that's a different way of thinking about it. That's what we call double loop learning. It's, it's at a much deeper level. Um, now we've identified that it's no good just giving them a routine to mask the issue because the real issue needs to be solved. And the real issue is that they have a real issue with their self-belief, that they lack real confidence. Um, now, triple loop learning is learning about learning. It's learning why we even feel that way in the first place. It's going to another layer of, level of detail underneath that. So we've explored and we've identified essentially that the player here 
lack self-belief. So now we need to understand, well, why have they learned to think that even in the first place? Where has that come from? Um, so in the book, we give some nice examples of, well, it, it could be that as we delve deeper into the player's life, we understand that there's parental abuse and that's why they're lacking confidence or um, there's rivalry of a sibling. Um, it, it could be that there's a family value there, that, that all, everyone else is better than us. And then all of a sudden we start to actually learn about learning. So the coach would start to behave differently in the situation where they can help to build confidence and, and start to build belief off the court, on the court, off the court, on the court, in training, in competition, where everything with the player is about learning to be more confident. And that's what we um, would call more triple loop learning. Now clearly, where organisations need to move towards, in my opinion, is that triple loop learning will help them ask more fundamental questions about their organization. Well, what do we really stand for? What do we really mean? What, what are we going to achieve by doing that? Is that really a worthwhile investment? Um, rather than just looking at a problem and saying, well, the solution is that, so let's do that. And I think that's a really useful model for coaches to ask why, 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 why? Is that important? Should we be doing that? Can we see this problem differently? How do we need to learn more things in order to understand the problem in a greater detail? It's about learning about learning. You also talk a lot in Chapter 3 about connecting values with goals, a sort of values-based approach to coaching. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. So, as we said earlier, that the book is really about helping the athlete and parent have a more successful career, but also a more successful life. So we help the person as well as the performer. Um, and it struck me and my co-author, Keith, that when we heard tennis players look back on their career, look at what tennis has given them, they, they don't remember the under 10 tournament they won. They, they don't remember the learning the grip on the, on, the, on the ground stroke technique. What they remember are the bigger picture things that tennis taught me humility, taught me to work hard, taught me excellence, taught me passion, taught me dedication. It, it was these values-based needs that, that they really now finally get. And, and I think it's a sad state of affairs when we can't bring that message to our younger athletes and parents um, right front and center of the journey. So we, we started thinking, well, okay, the world has gone very values-based crazy now in schools and organizations, um, but they still live as words. They live as words on the wall, not as actions and as behaviors that are linked to the goals of the organization or goals of the athlete or goals of the parents. So we wanted to be really clear on how we could help parent, player and coach um, and sports fans understand how you connect your values with your goals. So uh, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example on this. Values inform our beliefs. Attitudes and mindsets uh, in turn shape our assumptions. Our assumptions underpin our behavior, which others see and, and then react to. And it's this behavior that is the physical manifestations of these internal drivers. So I'll give you an example. If I'm a player and I really value strong work ethic, that's what one of my values is. I want to work hard for the coach, for, for the team, for, the, for my parent, and for most, most importantly for myself. So I value work ethic. My belief and attitude and mindset will be, well, I want to always do my best. I want to always give 100%. I'm going to leave my heart out there on the court. I'm going to give everything, uh, every training session. So what's my assumption then based on my belief? Well, my assumption is that if I work hard, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, I've got more chance of achieving my potential. That's my assumption, which is underpinned based on my beliefs and mindsets. And then my behaviors, 
will have to then align with my assumptions. So if I chase every ball down, if I never complain about being pushed, if I attend every training session, listen to the coach well, then my goal is more likely to be achieved. My goal is to improve at tennis, to improve at sport, to be a better colleague, to be a better performance director. But we have to be much better at connecting values, words on the wall, with um, beliefs, attitudes, mindsets, assumptions, behaviours and goals. And I think that's what being a transformational coach is all about. If you're a transformational coach, in, in, in our opinion, you don't just change people's skills, but you change their attitudes, values and beliefs. So you move someone from being lazy to being incredibly hardworking. You move someone from being um, unfocused to being laser beam focused. You move people on the dial in a much better direction. So, so yeah, we wanted to we wanted to really align values with beliefs um, that will shape assumptions, will drive our behaviour to help us achieve our goals. And that's a little bit the model we talk about in the book. One thing that's pretty obvious in tennis as well, of course, is the growing entourages in sporting partnerships. You talk about, of course, the coach, the player, and the parents, specifically in tennis. And you mentioned in the book, Jack Gibb. I wonder if you could perhaps elaborate a bit more on Gibb's model. Sure. So, as you mentioned in the, que in the question, um, in tennis, and I think this is true of other sports and other organizations, is that uh, teams are growing. We now know that in order to help people really um, achieve potential, that, that we need lots of external expertise in the room to help us do that. That, that one man bands, one woman bands, uh, is not enough to really uh, maximize potential. And that's definitely true in tennis, and it's definitely true in the junior game as well, that even in juniors you'll not just have a coach, but a nutritionist or some support, um, S&C, um, physio, stringer, uh, media, that there's lots of people now that are in the, the network of the player. So how can we, as the coach, help ensure that everyone's incredibly clear on their roles, responsibilities, to help the athlete achieve the potential and get on with what they need to do? So Gibb, I think, does a really good job of, of going to break in the, the dynamics down of successful teams. So he talks a lot about, um, you know, when you, when you join a group um, that has the potential of becoming a, a successful team, there's a set of needs. Uh, and we have to make sure that those needs are met in order for us to feel welcome and, and, and part of it. So the first one is acceptance. So individuals always have a need for inclusion and exclusion and some people have a need sometimes to be centre of attention and others may feel much more happier being on the periphery looking in to that team. Um, but the sweet spot here when it comes to acceptance is, is when team members feel they're accepted for essentially who they are, that they're part of the team not just on the team sheet uh, and there will be listeners listening right now know that there are teams that, um, of working groups within your organisation where someone's in there for a quota to make up the numbers because we feel like we need someone from that department. So that even though they're part of the team, they're not really part of the team because they don't feel accepted and validated into that um, working group. So that's always it's a really good model for reflective observation about you know, what is the purpose of, of this team and is it successful moving forwards. So the second need um, for a successful team is communication. So when acceptance has essentially been worked through, um, enough, then the need for communication is, is much more essential for good decisions to be made um, and that then becomes more of the focus. So if communication or data flow are not addressed, if there's too little, too much or if the communication's of poor quality, then the team can only kind of proceed with more cautious strategies presenting a more polite facade. 
Uh, and, and this happens all the time in organizations where the communication is so poor, people start to lose a little bit of belief of, of what's their role and purpose in, in the team. So after communication has been worked through, that everyone understands that, they, that it's a safe space to, to be able to contribute, that they can talk what's in their head, not just what they think they should say, that they, what they believe is right to be said. And again, that doesn't happen in most working teams as well. People just say the right thing, what they believe other people want to hear. Um, then we need some real objectives. So when both communication and acceptance are met, there needs to be a much more focus on goal setting, on achieving joint purpose. And that will enable the team to be much more productive, to get things done, to bring about change. But when the joint purpose is, is not clear, then there's always apathy because no one really knows why, why and where to exert their effort. So why bother? Uh, and as humans, we're, you know, we're objective-seeking animals, so we'll resort to our personal agendas versus actually what the organization or federational or team goals truly need to be. Uh, and then the last one is control. So we clearly need teams to be controlled with real leadership. Uh, leadership and followership, but we know is so important, they need to be aligned. There's a lot of leaders out there, but there's very few leaders that actually create genuine followership, that people want to be have all their ducks in a row and follow this person because they really believe in the goal. Uh, and I think that's really important, that cabinet responsibility where we're all really understanding what the needs are of the organization and how we contribute to that. So, um, the, the, I guess there's two po important points here that I really want to make. The first important point is that when these teams are created, um, the instigator of that team, often the manager, um, often start from the bottom up. So they want to start with control, who does what, they want to start with objectives, what's your job, what's your role, what's the joint purpose, then the communication, and then they kind of don't care if you feel accepted or not. You, you should be happy that you've kind of been invited into the room. However, and this is a really interesting point, and, and, and Gib makes this assertion, that to the people joining these teams, they start from the, from the top down. They want to feel accepted first. They want to be communicated to regularly and clearly. They want to be clear on their objectives. And then they want to feel like there's control and leadership. But... And, and we get that wrong. Leaders often get that so wrong. They feel that it should always be from a sense of control and objectives and that acceptance will come over time once you kind of fit in um, or, or just be happy that you're involved. So, so, so these, you know, these, these are really important points. And I just want to mention that the second point is that often teams forget very quickly their purpose. So even if they've been given clear objectives at the start, over time we get so habitualized by our daily patterns that we start to forget what's, what's, our, what's our role in this team. Where are we going to move the team forwards? Um, how do I keep contributing in a positive way? How do I keep working so hard for this team? How do I do that? Because they just get, they don't get reminded of the value that they bring to this working group to bring about change within the organization or to the athlete. Simon, early on in the book, you talk about the importance of contracting and you, you, you delve into that a little bit later on in the book as well in, in chapter five, where you talk about behaviours available to enable learning and provide guidance on their appropriate application. But perhaps it would be interesting to start with contracting and the importance of that. Sure. Well, of course, contracting is not a, not a new um, notion, especially from a legal state. Um, there are many professional clubs that will have legal contracts with their athletes on what is required and um, from both parties. What I'm talking about more in the book is that 
Yeah, especially in the amateurish world where, where coaching happens at clubs and uh, on a daily basis and with younger athletes where we don't have legal contracts is how can we create a contract of agreement between the player, parent and coach so everyone is incredibly clear on what their roles and responsibilities are. So I guess there's kind of concrete concrete uh, logistics and then there's all more relation, relational ones. So a concrete um, contract would be more about you know, where and when we're going to meet, uh, timekeeping, what time lessons are and expectations around that, reviews when they're going to take place, um, payment, uh, cancellation policy, the frequency of when we're going to uh, connect, um, when we're going to do an off-court or an on-court session. So those things, in our opinion, need to be nailed down very early on in the relationship. And then the other um, key point to, to mention here is in a contract is more of the relational agreements you're going to have so that could be confidentiality what I'm going to share with others and what I'm not going to share the depth and breadth of delivery you know I'm always going to individualize my coaching with you um, trust and respect um, how we're going to give feedback to each other um, what's our level of commitment to each other because um, it happens in tennis a lot where parents become frustrated with coaches because maybe the coach doesn't come and watch their child compete very much but the the, the, but the coach never agreed that they would watch a lot of matches anyway in the first place. So all of a sudden, you're not going to have great alignment um, later on in the relationship when there's a real kind of conflict moment, a moment of truth where the relationship could be broken or fractured because both parties are annoyed or upset with each other because of something they didn't even agree with in the first place. So that's happening all the time in sport all around the world, that we need to be um, very, very disciplined early on in the relationship. It's a much more formal process, of course, which scares some coaches, especially part-time coaches that are doing it on a voluntary basis. But can we help um, the parent, player and coach to be more aligned just simply by starting the relationship and then reviewing it on a regular basis, the, the agreement um, of this contract of services that you're going to provide because a lot of coaching in the world is done on a gig economy you get paid for the hours you do but then when the parent wants you to do more for that money there becomes a real um, obstacle a barrier and, and, a, and a crux moment where the relationship as I said can be fractured and we need to try and avoid those those sour spot moments there's sweet spot moments but there's also sour spot moments where um, the relationship can be really really damaged and it can impact on the self-development of each party, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Because we want all three stakeholders in the trio um, to be on the same page. We want all three of them to be um, contributing to that contract. So the contract is not just for what the parent expects of the coach, but it's what the player expects of the coach. It's what the player expects of the parent. So the player may expect the parent to be more empathetic in the, in the car on the way home. The player may expect the... Um, the, the coach to visit them more at tournaments. The, the player may expect the coach to do more video analysis. The player may expect the coach to, to communicate in a more positive, dynamic way. So I think that's a really important point to make that in coaching all around the world, if we can move the dial forwards on that, I think we'd be in a much healthier place. And another thing that struck me about Chapter 5, Simon, was this idea of intention plus behavior equals impact. I wonder if you could talk about checking intention before choosing intervention style and behaviour when you're a coach. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, one of the most important uh, distinctions we make in the book that um, often when we're coaching, because conversations are often timely, uh, within an hour in a week or in that two-hour training session, there's a need for the coach to, to speak a lot or to um, bring about their expertise to the player in order to try and shift 
And that's what it's all about, trying to shift the player's thinking, feeling or behaviour to be better versions of themselves, to improve, to learn and develop. What we talk about here is just maybe pausing sometimes and really sense-checking, well, what's my intention? What's my intention here? In, and that will shape my intervention style. So, for example, my intention might be that I want to help change their mindset. So I want them to be more process-orientated and less fixed mindset. Um, it may be that I want to help them be more confident. So therefore, for example, I want to help the player understand how they can beat taller, more physical players than them and give them more confidence against left-handers or, or whatever it may be. It may be that I want to um, shift their knowledge. I want to help them understand something new that they didn't know. It may be that I want to give them a new experience, uh, expose them to another training environment or expose them to another athlete or expose them to another sport. Um, so the experience might be my intention. Um, it might be that I, I want to change their attitude on something. Maybe that I want to develop their emotional resilience. It may be that I want to develop their skills. It may be that I want to develop um, their, their ability to be more motivated or more committed. I want, might be I want them to explore their feelings more. So there's lots of reasons why we might say something to a player. It's not always about the game. It's not always about the sport. It's not always about the skills. That there's lots of different intentions I may have before I decide to actually intervene. Um, so by sense-checking my intention, I'm then able to really select uh, an appropriate intervention for the player. And Simon, another thing that struck me about Chapter 5 as well was this notion of push-pull and co-creating behaviours, negative ones as well as positive ones. Could you talk a little bit about push-and-pull behaviours? Sure. So I guess uh, as a coach or as a leader or as a parent or as a player, we, there's always... Um, a style of delivery uh, and that style could be being appropriately authoritative or appropriately enabling and, and they're on they're on a scale and of course the scale is quite wide but there's been a huge push in the last kind of well I guess since the Second World War really to understand what makes people behave the way they do so pre Second World War most people most most teaching most learning was done on a what we call on a push type of energy so that energy was I, I essentially push my agenda onto you. I want you to do this. This will be good for you. You do it, otherwise we fail. So it really was the coach, the teacher, the instigator, the oppressor, the leader, um, leading from a very directive approach um, in order to bring about change. Okay. And then um, over time what we realize is that, that actually people have a view. People have a point of view. People have an opinion. People want to be involved in the process of learning uh, and, and achieving their goals. And even if they're a young eight-year-old, nine-year-old little tennis player, asking them questions, um, designing experiments for them to learn, to problem solve, actually we realized was a very, very powerful way of people learning skills. And that's what we call more pull energy, because we pull the person into the conversation by having a much more um, having them much more involved in answering questions, having them much more involved in shaping the agenda of the session. Um, but we, we actually don't believe that's enough. So the addition that we've made to push and pull behaviours is that, that real learning really happens when there's a degree of co-creation, when there's collaboration done in tandem, in concert with each other, that you're sharing the conversation. And, 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 and that's a really important distinction to make because for too long now, there are too many coaches 
in our opinion, too many performance directors and too many leaders that think that that the best type of leadership is is directive or the best type of leadership is facilitative. And what we're saying is that you need to be appropriate in all areas. But the most important one that's slightly different is this joining um, joint behaviours together. And that's what we call this co-creative type of energy um, where we're building common vision, where we're creating... So we're building common ground, we're creating a joint vision and purpose, and we're actually constructing a joint agenda. So it's about us working together on this journey. It feels more shared, the power is more shared, it's not all with you, it's not all with me, but it's actually mutually developed, discussed, debated, and, um, and over time um, achieved. So I think that's a really, really important um, message to the, to the listeners, is that whenever we're behaving, Sometimes we're pushing our agenda, which means we're proposing, um, we're expressing our feelings, we're stating our expectations. Sometimes we're pulling you much more into the conversation. We're letting you lead the agenda. We're letting you lead the meeting. We're letting you decide the future. And that's the skills of um, listening, exploring, um, being more open, uh, letting people in much more. And then there's these co-creative behaviors, which is a different type of energy. And it changes the feel of leadership. It changes the feel of a coaching session because it feels more that you're asking questions, giving your point of view, asking for their point of view, and you're almost arm wrestling the session together in order to bring about positive change. Uh, I think the other point to make, and it's a really important one, and you'll see it all the time with poor leadership, poor coaching, poor parental um, behaviors, is that there's these sour spot behaviors that really don't bring about positive change and those are the the, the exploiting behaviors of the coach um, what we call more passive more aggressive behaviors so it could be passive if I'm letting the player lead me all the time and it could be too aggressive if I'm leading the player too much so what do I mean by that exactly well the behaviors of banter is an epidemic in sports. So is it almost like everyone wants to be a comedian right now and have sarcastic quips at people. And, and I think vandalism is vandalism. That we there's no place for that in the workplace and there's no place for that on the court. So that's a behaviour that we really need to kind of dissolve out of our sport and out of uh, management and leadership in sport. Uh, ignoring the needs of others, I think, is a real poor behaviour, and also attacking others. So aggressive attacks on other people's behaviours, beliefs. Attitudes is something that's just unnecessary in coaching, and it still exists, and it's something we need to really eradicate. Um, the other ones are undermining yourself. So as the coach, you're undermining yourself. Yeah, that's not right, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, uh, and sometimes there's no place for that in the workplace either. Um, giving in too easily, or, or avoiding the difficult conversations that you need. So these are more the sour spot behaviours that are around exploiting um, them or them exploiting you. And as coaches, we need to be really careful that we don't fall and drop into these type of negative behaviours that there's no need for in the workplace or in the relationship between the trio. There was one final area I wanted to touch upon with you, Simon, and that was when you talk about words, music and dance. What do you mean? I guess for maximum impact, and in order to avoid confusion, which is the, the main point of this, this section, is there needs to be congruency in the delivery of our coaching conversation. So do the words, which is the language and content, the music, which is the voice tone, and the dance, which we define as the body language, convey the same message. So, for example, if an open-ended question is intended to help the player understand their thoughts and feelings in order to empower them, 
but the voice tone is judgmental, then the desired outcome will, will not be achieved. Even when the words and music are in sync, they're perfectly aligned with each other. Um, you know, it's just as simple as a raised eyebrow can completely change the message, and parents often do that. They'll sit at the side of the court, they'll watch their player, they may be even thinking good things, they may be even saying nice things to their player afterwards, but just a simple raised eyebrow or a, a dropping of the head can, can really destabilize the player in the moment. So we have to be really careful that, that our body language, that our tone of voice, and actually the words that we choose are perfectly aligned to bring about powerful impact with the player, that they're in sync with each other. Because if there's a mixed message, we're more likely to believe the worst part of that, the worst part of the words, the worst part of the music, the worst part of the dance, than we are the best part. And there are too many conversations that I think don't bring about positive feedback or positive change with the athlete. I don't want to shy away from giving tough messages. That's not what I'm saying. Because sometimes when we give tough messages, we also need to make sure that's aligned. So if we're being tough with a player or a parent, we can't then start laughing and joking at the end. Because that gives a misalignment of message from the tone and the musicality of it to actually the real oomph of what we're trying to get across. Well, Simon, I hope we got the words, music and dance correct in the podcast here today. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. The book is called The Sweet Spot, Unleash Your Potential in Tennis Coaches, Players and Parents with your co-writer, Keith Humphrey. Simon, once again, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much. Thanks.